0: Aloha. It's Tuesday, November 7th. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Help wanted. Are you one of the thousands who lost their jobs in the Maui wildfires? Well, there's a new federal program to help people get back on their feet. Available now, 300 jobs that start around 20 bucks an hour. Some pay even more. Ever been fascinated by the sight of an enormous ship out of the water and on blocks? We explore what's behind the concept of dry dock, taking ships out of water to keep them in tip-top shape. Plus, we salute our armed forces with the Veterans Day holiday coming up. We continue to hear from veterans living here in the islands, part of the StoryCorps series on military voices. And a collection of storyboards like no other. The East-West Center showcases Palawan art spanning over 100 years. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The State Labor Department has 300 temporary jobs that it's trying to fill with workers who are unemployed due to the Maui wildfires. It's thanks to a $21 million federal grant. We talked to Maricar uh, Pilotin Freitas, administrator with the Workforce Development Division, about this opportunity for those workers who are jobless on Maui. We have been fortunate to receive a national dislocated
1: worker grant from the U.S. Department of Labor to provide temporary jobs to those that were impacted by the wildfires. So we have been in partnership with the wonderful folks at Maui Economic Opportunity. Debbie Kabibi and her staff there have been great partners in helping us to deploy these services in recruiting those that were impacted and we are there to provide 300 temporary Temporary jobs to hopefully help with humanitarian efforts as well as the non-toxic cleanup of the wildfire. So wages for these temporary jobs can range from $20 and 50 cents per hour for office assistant and $23 an hour for humanitarian assistant. And that includes uh, distribution of food or water, arranging housing, and collection of uh, those household donated items. Um, so those are what we call humanitarian assistant, and we also have administrative assistant to help with the accountant, IT, or social worker type of work, and that pays twenty six dollars an hour. Um, so that is the wonderful news that I wanted to share, and the the temporary jobs can be for one year. It's paid by federal. US Department of Labor. And so it's two funding um, awards. Uh, The first is 10.5 and the second half will come later. So the total funds that the Department of Labor here has been awarded uh, amounts to $21 million.
0: So it's substantial. And, you know, there are so many people I'm I'm trying to remember what the stats were it was like 8,000 I think after the wildfire there were so many people out of jobs because either they you know their workplaces burned down in Lahaina or they were somehow tied into the visitor industry and with that shut down they were just out of jobs
1: correct and so that's why this grant is very very um, uh, great in meeting that need so that you know unemployment is temporary And so this will provide some financial assistance while they transition to more permanent jobs. So this is a temporary um, job for those that were impacted, and it allows them to have that financial stability to provide uh, food on the table for their families as well as help with their daily living expenses.
0: And we saw some tremendous, generous really caring folks in the community step up to do those types of things. But obviously, you know, we're, we're going into the third month here and you need the infrastructure to remain, you know, if the need is still out there.
1: Thank you for allowing us to share this grant with the uh, people here and so that hopefully they'll be able to take advantage and they can go to the MEO website to get more information or to express their interest. Right now we have over 150 individuals that have um, submitted their interest in these jobs. So hopefully as we begin to place them in the temporary jobs, you'll start to hear it more and more and then the word can travel so that other people that have been impacted can take advantage of this opportunity to get temporary jobs for up to one year
0: yeah I mean you've got folks that used to work let's say you know along Front Street right Um, either at the galleries or at the Lahaina luau you know at the hotels those types of places that have just been shut down since those fires there's a need to get those people working again get a paycheck to help them recover
1: yeah, it's, it's really crucial for them to, I, I know it's, it's a lot of um, mental and emotional uh, drain at this time. But the, these wages that they can earn will help to hopefully get those wages in uh, into the economy as well as to help them recover from the impact of this devastation.
0: And I know that you folks just kicked off a campaign to also offer paid internships there at the Labor Department. Because if you're stepping up in these areas, you know, having received these federal funds, you probably need more help to administer these different programs.
1: Yes, Similar to the private sector, you know, we as state agencies are challenged in recruitment also. We have been operating what we call internship and work experience for various federally funded programs, but this opportunity, we have the HELIMUA, which was really state. Funded as well as Quest, what we normally call Quest. So we called it Hele Imua Catherine, because the public don't need to know what uh, funding source is. So it's just an internship, and it allows us to reverse the brain drain for the people and bring them back or keep them in Hawaii. You know, human resources is so valuable in the state. And if we continue to lose people to the mainland or to foreign country, then that we're losing the talent pool in the state. So Heli Imua, those um, ads that you've been seeing on TV, um, so we're happy to share that we have been placing individuals into State jobs, and although it's a slow process right now because it's a new program, we hope that allowing exposure to learn about the different jobs that's available in the state will um, help people to transition into permanent jobs with um, the state agencies as well as private sector so that's what the Hele'imua is intended to do to reverse the brain drain as well as expose them to various occupations and um, college kids we have one really from the big island that is so happy to return after they graduate and work for the court system. So those are just one of the success stories that we have, and hopefully there'll be more to share as uh, the program
0: gets more traction. You know, we heard lots of discussion following the fires that, you know, maybe folks were going to move to Vegas uh, to work in the hospitality industry over there, but if folks are trying to transition and really want to stay here in Hawaii, That this would be an opportunity just to get a kind of a a peek at you know what human resource is all about, or or or, you know different jobs that would be available.
1: Yes, and it it allows them. Maybe this is an opportunity to transition to other jobs. That's. Maybe uh, not in the service industry, and they can eventually go back. You know, there's such a shortage in healthcare right now that maybe these individuals can transition to fill those much-needed vacancies in the healthcare industry.
0: But you're all about workforce development, so if these programs are there, you need help administering them. You need folks to try these jobs that are are helping in the recovery of Maui
1: we need every everybody on board to help and outreach to individuals that's interested in taking temporary jobs or learning to transition into a different occupation so the department of labor we operate uh several several uh fairly funded program as well as state funded programs so if the public could hear we're really i i call it a hidden commodity that's very valuable to help job seekers and finding the right fit for them
0: okay so you're really the clearinghouse for a lot of these uh, possibilities
1: correct (laughs) so thank you for sharing our our uh, services and they can access these services through the American Job Centers, as you've uh, seen through those ads. So we have American Job Centers on every island. And so when they walk in, the public walks in there. Um, there's, they're really the concierge of services for go. the workforce. All right. So that's what we do here. And so thank you for allowing me to share some of our services.
0: That was Marikar Pilotin Freitas, administrator for the Workforce Development Division at the State Labor Department. She was talking about a $21 million federal grant that's been awarded to help get workers displaced by the Maui wildfires into temporary jobs. The department also just launched an ad campaign around its Hele'emua program providing paid internships to help workers transition into other fields. Honolulu Beat features a story today about fixing Maui's water system following the recent wildfire disaster. The bad news is it could take years before clean drinking water is restored to that area. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I mean, this really is a reality check because, you know, everybody needs water.
2: Right. Um, and the water is believed to be contaminated uh, in the Lahaina area, and I know everyone is eager to rebuild and start talking about, you know, what the vision should be for what that community will look like in the future, but you can't really have a community without water. And I spoke with the director of the County Department of Water Supply, John Stuffelbean. He said restoring the system could take two to three years and could really hold up redevelopment and it could cost $80 million or more, which is his entire budget for a whole year.
0: And this is uh, what, just replacing all the pipes?
2: It's testing. Uh, so they're doing the mass sampling uh, effort and then testing, sending those samples to labs, seeing what the contamination is, how bad is it, where is it, and then, yes, replacing many, many pipelines that melted or were compromised in the fires. Um, just to give you a sense of like how this works, so the water distribution system takes uh, water from the source, which is a stream or wells, malka from town, and brings it in, and there's water mains, and then those pipes lead to the service lines that go to people's homes and businesses. So, during the fires, those uh, last pipes I mentioned are the ones that were melted or uh, were compromised to release chemicals, and so those chemicals... Uh, like benzene and other they're called volatile organic compounds VOC's they seeped into the water within the pipes Um, so now they're trying to see how bad is that exactly how can they fix it and you know trying to get that all done as quickly as possible
0: yes and you know we heard a lot about the families that are paying mortgages and if they do get a break on those payments for a few years you know there's a finite you know there's a deadline and so if there are any delays in getting a water system up that just creates a problem
2: exactly One property owner I spoke with said this will really be disastrous for families to wait two or three years before they can even get back on their property he's hoping that they can maybe bring in some water tanks and have people live in tiny homes on their properties just so they don't have to pay mortgages and rent somewhere else It's just these people have been through so much already and so to, to have to deal with this aspect as well it's a, just an added challenge
0: and I can imagine if there are homes that survived the fire and their families that return uh, to those houses you know they probably don't have water if they're hooked up to the same system
2: yeah you know just because your house survived doesn't mean that your your water pipes are okay and going forward there may be added costs for property owners to ensure that their water is safe because the county's responsibility is only up until the water meter. Between the meter and people's faucets is their own responsibility. So if there's contamination in that uh, area, they may have to test and address that themselves and also potentially in the future install backflow prevention devices. These are uh, devices that prevent the water from homes from going back siphoned into the system for the whole community. So it's the whole thing's going to be really expensive for the county, for the federal government, for individuals, but there's really not a way around it. We need clean water.
0: And we saw, you know, what happened in Kula, you know, they had advisories, you know, about the water, you know, don't drink, and I think those have finally been cleared, but you know, that's yes. gosh, it, this marks what 3 months since that fire.
2: Right, yes. Fortunately for Kula, they are in the clear. Uh, The hard part, it will definitely be Lahaina, just the extent of the damage there. Um, And the the county has has only started to scratch the surface of testing in the the core of the burn zone in Lahaina. So the results that have been released so far really don't capture uh, the worst of it.
0: Yeah, and then there's lots of concern about uh, PFAS, the forever chemicals in a lot of the Oh gosh, everything that we use in our daily lives, right? Exactly. And now those things are burned, and then where does it go?
2: Right, right. So, so many of our consumer goods that we rely on day to day have these toxic forever chemicals um, in them, and we're familiar with them from the toxic firefighting foams that we've talked a lot about on Oahu. But um, the concern more on Maui was, uh, you know, the burning of couches or carpets or other things that have these fire retardants in them, that doesn't just go away. So uh, the county will, will have to look into that as well. I think right now their focus is on these other chemicals, volatile organic compounds, but hopefully they'll look into the PFAS as well.
0: All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Christina.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And that was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. A reader story online at civilbeat.org. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio coming up your backyard quiz Onihoa olehua, onihao ukawa oah umuloga ulanu <laughs> umau ukauolabe uhavai Today we're asking what you know about Korean immigrants' commitment to one of the primary reasons for immigration, to educate their children. Education was a promise made by those who recruited Koreans to labor on the plantations, but it took the community's financial commitment to make it happen. Korean laborers urged the Hawaiian Methodist mission to establish a school for Korean boys. Most were sugar plantation workers earning $17 a month. But Koreans pledged $2,000 for each boy enrolled in the school. The Korean Boarding School for Boys opened its doors in the fall of 1906 with a class of 65. In the fall of 1913, it changed its name to the Korean Central School to accommodate female students, making it the first coeducational institution for Koreans in the world. For today's backyard quiz, can you tell us the original location of the Korean Boarding School for Boys and the Korean Methodist Church? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neiread Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NeireadHawaii.com.
4: Aloha, I'm DJ Mermaid, host of Hawaii Kula Ivi on HPR. Join me for HPR's in-person sound salon event called 808 Harding. We've all felt it, pain, sorrow, anger, even vengeance. We'll explore how these feelings are expressed in some of my favorite Hawaiian music. The event is this Thursday night at 7. Admission is $10. Seating is limited. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events
3: support for hpr comes from costco air conditioning and refrigeration featuring daikin air conditioning systems listing of contractors installing daikin products that's d-a-i-k-n at CostcoHawaii.com.
0: Sometimes we see something that prompts us to think, how is that possible? Well, one of them is watching an enormous shipping barge or a towering Coast Guard cutter or a long Navy submarine lifted out of the ocean and into dry dock for maintenance. The company Pacific Shipyards International does that regularly right here in Honolulu Harbor. Locally owned and operated, it's been around for nearly 80 years and employs over 200 people. HPR's Russell SubiONO went down to Pier 24 with CEO Ian Woods and Vice President of Programs, Troy Kuyper to learn more about the dry docking process and the kinds of jobs it creates.
5: If you want to take a look at the... Okay. Yeah. Got a little tugboat. Little.
6: It's not really little, but... I always wondered what made tugboats tugboats. I, I guess I, I just never realized the propellers are really like propellers. masses. Yeah. Really
5: big propellers. That's it's, what makes a tugboat. Yeah, I, I'd say it's almost like a, a, a big fuel tank, a big engine, and a big propeller. Yeah.
6: <laughs> yeah. If it's possible for you guys to kind of take us through the sure. um, the process of, of, of bringing a boat into the dry dock, how how you position it in, in the, just the right way to, to hit the blocks in just the right way? And how do you, you, know, like, how do you keep it from you know, tipping over from one side to the other?
5: How do we put it into words? Because it, visually you, we could explain it much easier yeah. how a ship sits on blocks and doesn't tip over. But we essentially, these ships have plans or blueprints that, that describe the, the shape or the structure of the, the ship's hull. And, and it specifically, we, it shares with us where the specific locations are to put blocks on the dry dock. So we'll build a dry dock block build that matches specific structural locations on the ship's hull, and then we put them on the dry dock floor, and we lower the dry dock underwater. The ship floats in, usually by the assist of tugboats, you know, two to three sometimes tugboats, and then line handlers from the dry dock help haul the ship in the dry dock, and then we line up the ship with the blocks, through various things from lasers to sights to the floating devices that our guys will use to help line it up, and divers frequently will help line it up. And then the ship, the drawdock lifts up from the water and, and captures the ship, cradles it, or like in a glove, essentially lifts it out of the water. So I'm oversimplifying it, that process usually, wow. uh, a day of docking can take anywhere from four hours to eight to 12 hours, depending on the wow. complexity of the docking. Uh, 50 million pounds of steel or something sitting on a little block it's a huge amount of weight and then try this little comparison of of what it what it's equivalent to like for like someone's shoes standing on your foot and which is pretty neat to put it in, in more uh,
7: this was a joke for the crowd I said yeah. you know Hawaii loves Tacomas, right right so if you can just relate to people in in the you know terms of Tacoma's the Coast Guard Cutter Kimbo was 2000 Toyota Tacomas, which is <laughs> kind of
5: interesting. Yeah. So when you uh, walk underneath it and you realize you're walking underneath 8 million pounds of steel, yeah. it's kind of awe-inspiring. And then Troy put it in more perspective compared to like a bicycle tire driving over your foot or yeah, you know, step Yeah, people over your think head. of this huge weight of a
7: ship and it must, you know, present incredibly dense footprint of pounds per square inch but when you actually do the math it's not very much at all because we have to delicately support the ship because it lives its life in the water i mean it's very structurally sound to go in big waves and ocean going and whatever but when we block it you have to kind of provide a similar supporting structure and so you have to put the blocks on the right place that ian can talk more diligently on but um i found it interesting that a high heel is 25 times more pressure than a keel block for an eight million pound ship. What? Isn't that bizarre? That is, Yeah, that is crazy. When you do the math, the actual weight of, a bl- of the ship, of an eight million pound ship on these blocks and these blocks here is about 100 PSI. It's about the same as a road bike tire mm-hmm.
6: and it's much less than a stiletto heel. Wow. Isn't that bizarre? That is, <laughs> that is. <laughs> the research that I've done on the website, the two docks that you have here are floating docks. They essentially submerge beneath the surface of the water enough so that the vessel can come into the dock itself.
5: Yes, exactly what you said. We submerge the dock down to a prescribed depth that's sufficient to float the ship over at the ship's draft that it's floating at. And all, all, all
7: Ian's doing yeah. is the dry dock master is literally letting water into the dry dock. Yes. It'd be like pulling the plug on your boat and letting it sink down. Okay.
5: Yeah. We yeah. generally don't call it sinking. Really. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not a good word, right? <laughs> we lower the dry dock down.
6: <laughs> how much of it is mathematical calculations and how much of it is just like experience and feel? <laughs>
5: Well, for every docking we do, we do a docking plan, and we check it with our engineering. Our engineers also do the docking calculations to verify the block loads, to make sure the block loads are safe, not only for that dock, but also for the ship. And then we calculate the, the plan of pumping the water, you know, adding the water into the tank and pumping it out. So so there's that. But there's also, a, you have to have a pretty healthy, a good, strong stomach for doing this. You're moving in you know, eight million pounds of steel with tugboats. Mm-hmm you're lifting the dock up. So it does take some time to get used to that because the dock, as a dock you know, goes up and down, It, it move, you know, I don't say it moves on its own mind, but it kind of will, will move and the dock will roll depending on how you're pumping it. So you have to be able to anticipate that. You can calculate it mathematically, but it also is, is more something you learn by feel over time. It's like you can calculate mathematically how to ride a bike, but unless you fall over and skin your knees once in a while, you really can't appreciate how to ride a bike.
6: At this point, when you have a ship in dry dock, what are some of the jobs that your employees here do? Is it, is it more than just like cleaning and resurfacing the exterior of the ship?
7: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we made up a word. We are a fully facilitized shipyard, which we made the word up. Um, but no, I mean, there's a quality assurance department, there's environmental health and safety, there's project management, there's production. We, and of course, we have human resources and accounting and all of that, but there's uh, much more that goes into it than just hauling the ship out and pressure washing it and you know yeah. maybe sandblasting and painting it. We do valve work. There's mechanics that'll do extensive valve refits. We have a pipe fitting department, structural work. Um, common work would be cropping out you know rusted steel and putting in new rusted
5: s- new steel pretty much yeah I mean if you if you took like a, a ship like a Coast Guard ship we we did uh, a full preservation of the entire ship from the ship's keel to the top of the mast we did work on the propeller propellers and propeller shafts so the mechanical systems of the ship as troy mentioned the the valves so there's you know there was a you know hundreds of valves within the ship to support all the interior ships hotel systems we pull those all out, overhaul those. Um, Or you may have a vessel that's a barge, a more simple vessel that's mostly preservation and mostly steel work, repairs to work we do on base, on pier side work that's, uh, you know, or dry docking work that's uh, doing overhaul of more complex systems. So so anywhere from, you know, the craftsmen are are welders, painters, mechanics, machinists, uh, supported by engineering, quality, assurance, and choice of the other you yeah, right, supporting right. functions in yeah. the company forgot us, right?
6: Yeah. <laughs> what makes for a good dry dock worker? Is it, is it someone that's really good at math or somebody that swims really well? <laughs> you know, if you were to look for the ideal person to bring into the company and, and bring up through the company, what would be some of those baseline skill sets that you'd
5: be looking for? I mean generally I think similar things that are in all in all industries, you know, s- strong work ethic. The shipyard industry is also I'd say tougher, right? It's a it's a very heavy industrial environment. You know, in a dry dock specific, hopefully not doing too much swimming because you know, we're hoping the ship's staying on the dock with <laughs> right. it. but um you know, for a craftsman, it's 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 very hands on skill set, you know, so it's it's it tends to be more specialized in the in the mar- maritime industry or ship repair industry. So I think it
7: takes somebody to be able to react to change quickly because typically on a you know a 300 day project we'll have four or five 600 change orders so we have a change order every single day that's changing our scope of work and so it takes a, a crew in my opinion that can react quickly and adjust on the fly both from your administrative staff, contracts, project managers, to the guys working on the deck plate. You know, they may have to be able to react and submit reports. So it takes a whole team to really work through all the changes.
5: Yeah, I think another way to think of it is you think of a ship that's its normal operating environment is, is on the ocean, it's, it's, it's carrying cargo somewhere, it's carrying you know, troops somewhere or sailors somewhere in the ocean, and then moving into a dry dock is not its natural environment. And so they typically, those, that environment, they want to get that done as fast as possible, and get back into the normal ser- sea service that they're intended to be doing. So the dry docking periods, when they come to us, they're coming to us for an overhaul or a dry docking overhaul. It's fast, it's intense. There's a lot going on. You know, The entire ship's you know being torn apart in a lot of cases. And, and so you have to be able to work in that high pace environment. It, it's, it's somewhat akin to, like I would say, like the emergency room at a hospital. Right, where where ships are coming in broken for a quick turnaround to get fixed and back out, or a major overhaul. And so it's a pretty high-paced environment, so people that can work in that high-paced environment, confined spaces, going inside tanks and tight places. Yeah, and and it's rewarding at the same time, because you feel like you're, you're, you're fixing ships to get them back out to, you know, Bring bring food from you know Honolulu to the Big Island, or yeah. you're, you're putting the Coast Guard back out there to do what the Coast Guard's mission is of the Navy. So it's it's a rewarding thing also at the end of the day that we know we're we're helping support the the larger community. You mentioned like you know what's the impact to the community, and yeah. and so you know I'd say dry docks in Hawaii and the private sector have invested into floating dry docks to support the the, the maritime community here is really important because it. It keeps, you know, the ships that, you know, you have the inner island tug tug-and-barge fleet, keeps them operating here in Hawaii, the Coast Guard here in Hawaii. Otherwise, they would have to take these vessels to the mainland to get them, to get them serviced, and that takes them right. out of the area for many more months than they should be and that's you know the economic impact to those companies or to those agencies and the quality of life of, of people that go with the ships. So it's it's really a great benefit to have the docks here to do the maintenance work here in, in Honolulu.
6: And I know you guys have a staff of about two hundred as well so you created a lot of jobs for local people as well.
5: Right. And it's not and it's not just our employees. We subcontract out a lot of work. So we bring in, you know, probably a, on par, the same amount of subcontracted employees also to help us do the work. Again, that's, you know, as you know in Hawaii, it's it's a community, and the same thing in the ship repair industry, it's a community, and we we don't get the work done by ourselves. We rely on a, a good, tight network of our partners to help get the work done. So it's also creating jobs for for those companies as well.
0: That was Pacific Shipyard Internationals, Ian Woods and Troy Kuyper talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO about the dry docking process. And the part it plays in Hawaii's economy. Water has powered Kauai in the past. Will it power its future?
8: The Kauai Island Utility Cooperative is pursuing a multi-year lease for a new hydropower plant on the Waimea River, which would divert a rolling average of 11 million gallons of water a day. But community members pushed back, saying DLNR should require KIUC to complete a full environmental impact statement to investigate the project. The hydrologist Matt Rosner hopes KIUC completes an environmental impact statement.
7: A lot of times we've used the terms renewable and green energy interchangeably. That's not always true. There are some hydropower projects out there that actually have pretty significant environmental impacts.
8: The plantations diverted millions of gallons of water out of natural stream beds for irrigation and power, which continued long after the sugar era ended.
9: They took away the water without anybody having any say about it. It really alienated a lot of Hawaiians from their land, all the plantations.
0: Support energy and climate change coverage on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. Veterans Day is this Friday and we honor those who've served their country and if you've been in the military you know trauma isn't always rooted solely on the battlefield. That's the focus of today's StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative segment with HBR host John Zack. It's part of a series of local stories collected from across the islands. Take a listen.
9: This is StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative. A self-described risk taker, Alexandra Suthard possessed an exuberant love of languages foreign cultures and adventure that inspired her to join the Air Force as a public health officer, followed by assignments in the U.S. State Department. Some unexpected incidents tested her in ways she couldn't have imagined. Here, she shares some of her story with Hazel Diaz.
8: I had some very difficult trauma during my service, including sexual abuse.
4: Would you like to say more about that?
8: Yes, it occurred in another country While you were an officer? I was in the State Department at the time, and I had um, physical injuries. So I was in a hospital in the Middle East. And I also had had a high-ranking enlisted officer in my group that committed suicide. And there were copycat suicides or threats of. It had big ramifications. It was early on in my service. I filed a restraining order and it went to trial. And the line of questioning while I was on the witness stand was trying to make a storyline that I may be an incapable mother because I had a PTSD rating. To me, this was horrifying. This was something that happened, as they say, a normal reaction to abnormal circumstances. It is not normal to have someone in your office shoot themselves in front of your office. It is not normal to be on an IV and unable to walk and have somebody attack you. It makes you a more compassionate mother or parent. I don't care what gender you are. If you have things like this happen to you, it makes you a better parent in almost all cases, I would say.
9: Alexandra was able to remember the good she and her colleagues accomplished in the Air Force and in the State Department. In her 40s, she became a mom of two lively, energetic boys. Alexandra draws on all of her life experiences to raise them with love and confidence.
8: So going from this um, culture to being a mother where you're a, a nurturer, you have to be their rock, you have to be their protector, your point of safety. They have to know what to expect. They're really good swimmers, and so yesterday we went to Waimea Bay, and we swam, and we saw turtles and fish, and, you know, some mothers are more risk-averse than I am, but I take calculated risks with them and allow them to have their freedom just the way my parents did.
9: StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative is produced in collaboration with Hawaii Public
3: Radio. I'm John Zach. Local support for StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, comes from Hawaii Pacific University, with military campus programs for service members and their families, on base, on campus, and online, hpu.edu military.
6: I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. Would it help to think of failures on a spectrum?
0: I just went from the blameworthy end all the way over to the praiseworthy end.
6: And what about failures in medicine where it truly can be life or death? There's lots of
3: examples of huge public sector failures, but this was one of the biggest.
10: It's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
3: Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from the Arn and Ruth Werchik Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arne and Ruth Werchik Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Library's Kona at folkhawaii.com.
0: Now it's time to educate you with the answer to the backyard quiz. Earlier we asked if you knew the original location of the Korean boarding school for boys and Korean Methodist Church. The school was located uh, in the old North Pacific Institute, the site of the present day Kalanimoku State Building. The church was located in an adjoining building and the site was commonly known as the Korean compound. The Korean boarding school for boys first opened its doors in 1906 at the request of Korean immigrants working on sugar plantations. In 1913, the school changed its name to the Korean Central School when it began accepting female students. The students studied standard academic subjects as well as the Bible and the girls learn home economics. The school's first principal was Reverend Singman Rhee, who went on to become the first president of South Korea. The school finally closed at the end of the 1918 school year when the Korean Methodist Church also relocated. That's today's quiz. We had no winners. We stumped you on that one. But if you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. past weekend, Hawaiians Palawan community turned out to celebrate the opening of a new exhibit at the East-West Center Art Gallery in Manoa. The exhibit opened Sunday and Palawan Pride was on display. The Storyboards of Palau, Artistry, Influence, Impact is the title of the show. The president of Palau, Serangwa Whips Jr. was on hand this weekend and gifted a storyboard to add to the East-West Center collection. We talked to co-curators Margaret Vitarelli and Annie Reynolds about what it took to mount this unusual exhibit. Vitarelli grew up in Palau. She's a former curator of the Mission House Museum and educator at the Manoa Heritage Center. She currently lives on the Big Island. Reynolds starts us off, recalling the desire to focus on the Pacific region. She says they were brainstorming ideas and it just grew from there.
4: It was an early conversation with Margot, just about the center's kind of current uh, focus on the Pacific. And so we were thinking about, you know, we had had the fest Pack exhibition uh, previously and Margot kind of came to us with this idea about focusing on the storyboards and it kind of kind of grew from there just this idea of really wanting to honor the art form and show what a variety and such a, a deep and rich history that there is so with the set that we have here and the collection that we have in the exhibition, with over 60 boards, uh, we have a range from I believe 1936 is our earliest board, uh, ranging to a board that was just completed this last weekend. Um, so we have a few boards that are even from 2023, which is really incredible. And kind of through the the process, we have boards that we borrowed from the Bilao National Museum from the Honolulu Museum of Art lending collection, and then from over two dozen local lenders uh, that we borrowed from, and with that, uh, we really have this full range of different styles and different, you know, every era has representation, so you really see how it develops over time. So I think from what began as an idea and thinking of an art form, we were able to really get this full range, which has kind of been incredible to see because I think what, when it becomes kind of a seed and an idea, you don't know what it will become. And I'm just so pleased to see this incredible range that we have in the exhibition.
0: Well, I just walked through it and I was just flabbergasted because there were just things that I wasn't familiar with and uh, it, it was just really It's really beautiful from the, you know, eye-popping painted ones to the more intricate wood carving. And, And Margot, you know, you have a connection to Palau, and so, you know, you know that, yeah, the story is key. The story is key, and this is all about
10: stories, stories that make Palau what it is, the identity of Palau, the history of Palau, all carved in wood by many talented, skillful local Palauan carvers. And I wanted to feature... The individuals themselves, because they sometimes don't get attention as to who they are, what they've been doing. And we actually brought one of the carvers to Hawaii to spend a week here demonstrating carving, and he had a wonderful time. People loved meeting him. He was here every day in the gallery, and he just left today, but people should still come by and see all the different styles of carving. And. Um, all the other things that come with carving, the people, the history, some woven baskets, some Palauan money, all the things that connect to the storyboards.
0: So what makes this exhibit different from maybe what other people might have seen somewhere else? Well, first of all, the carving of
10: Palau is unique in all of Micronesia. No one else in Micronesia, all the way from northern Marianas to the Marshall Islands, don't do narrative art like storyboard carving. They have other art forms that are equally important to them, but not quite like this. It's this very unique in the Pacific to show a story carved on a plank of wood. So Palau is unique and it's also unique because it came from the by, the traditional men's meeting house, the tall A-frame thatched roof by, of which there are four left, but the original by, was the origin of the storyboard so it came from a building and then became a portable smaller piece of wood that became a handicraft but a handicraft that is still well done often when we switch from one older form traditional form to a new form it kind of lessens in quality but the carvers are very proud of what they do and so the quality has been maintained overall
0: And. Right here at the entrance, there's a nice picture of a, like an apprentice group of carvers learning from master carvers.
10: The master carvers, I think there were 10 to 12, and they learned under the Japanese administration, under a man who wanted to organize a carving guild, so they were the master carvers. So then the American administration of Micronesia, they still kept carving during that time, and then trained the younger people, the younger apprentices. So that photo is actually from a museum, the National Museum project in 1986 to purposefully train the younger
0: carvers. And then this exhibit is organized by story.
10: Yes, it's kind of a unique way of organizing art objects. The stories are really important to Palau even today. Villages have stories that are unique to them. Clan lineages have stories unique to them. So people still value the stories and use the names of the stories in their daily language as proverbs, as jokes. So it's really still important to Palau today.
0: Is there anything, and I haven't gone through the whole area, but is there anything on navigation? Not really, because once
10: people got to Palau, they didn't really navigate like the Outer Island Yapis and Maupiailug. They had all the resources they needed in Palau and they kind of stayed put and didn't travel anymore. So their long distance canoes were no longer made. They were just fishing canoes, war canoes. So Palau were not the great navigators after they once arrived. It was more Sarawal,
0: And so these stories, I mean, they're legends and stories connected to breadfruit, childbirth, you know, that kind of thing.
10: Yes. It's very dramatic, actually. There's warfare, there's discovery, there's trickery, passionate love stories, there's murder, there's the story, and there's a couple stories that are actually historically correct like the people of Yap coming all the way to Palau to get their stones, to fashion it into stone money, bring them back to Yap. We have a whole wall of Yap money stories and another wall of a love story, suret. There's also tales for children and funny stories. So it runs the gamut of what life is all about.
0: And so, you know, because you lived there, uh, how would you convey to someone who has never been to that part of the world, to that part of the Pacific, what it means to you?
10: Well, I grew up in Palau watching the storyboard carvers, not realizing that it was anything unique or important. You know, my dad was an educator, traveled around the islands building schools. I just tagged along, and there would be storyboard carvers everywhere. And some of them, I have photos of them on the wall here. And I just knew him when I was a child. And then uh, as Palau developed, they started craft fairs, festivals, and the storyboard carvers would be present and celebrated in those festivals. So I watched it happen as I went up. And then later as an adult, I actually opened a gift shop in Palau. So I realized the storyboard carvers were isolated in their villages and tourists couldn't find them so they didn't sell well for a while. So I said, okay, bring all your boards into my craft shop and I'll sell them for you. And so that was really helpful to the carvers and a
0: lot of fun. And then your dad was an artist on Maui, wasn't he?
10: My dad was an educator in Micronesia for over 20 years and then retired on Maui and just became a, sort of a local guru teaching people organic farming, and
0: writing his memoirs. And so what would he think if he saw this exhibit today, you know, knowing what part that Palau had in your life? Well, he was always
10: so proud of Palau, he used to tell them during the time of negotiating the future status with the U.S., he would say, you can be independent, you're the most clever people in the world, you're fabulous. And he sent many of them away to college and then they came back and became leaders. So he was really involved in the development of Palau and wanted it to be an independent nation, which is kinda of hard to do. But he's he would be very excited about this and happy that the storyboard covers are getting exposure.
0: And then, you know, to have this exhibit here at East West Center, I mean it was on the heels of, of Festpack, um uh, you know what does that mean to the the gallery here
4: what i think is so incredible about sharing this story here is the layers of story because the way we approach exhibitions is very different than other spaces so when we show art we show beautiful high quality art but it's not art for art's sake it's art for storytelling it's and so here we have such rich rich history and we have the stories themselves, we have the motifs, so if you come around the corner, you'll learn about what each of the motifs means and so you really get a different insight into the into the storyboards. And then what we've also done is we've connected to the contemporary. So you see this whole lineage of how the storyboards uh, evolve over time, and we have a timeline of the how they evolve. Then it's even contemporary artists that we're working with, even in different mediums. So graphic design artists, Uh, Locally, we have Kalani Omankar and his graphic design art, Elsay Talei, who's in Palau. But we also have the works of Samuel Adelby, who was an artist-in-residence at the East-West Center in 1985. So we had two of his paintings from our permanent collection on display. And it gives us a new way to appreciate his beautiful canvas paintings from that time. And so that when somebody comes into the exhibition, they can really understand his beautiful masterpiece within the context of the art forms uh, within Palau. So it's really, really special here.
0: And that was Annie Reynolds and Margo Vitarelli, co-curators of a new exhibit at the East West Center on the University of Hawaii at Manoa campus. The free show featuring Palauan storyboards runs till January 7th. That's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we look at how this weekend's Maiden Maui Festival fared. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation stories on our website or wherever you look for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.